0: Good morning it'd be helpful to me and I hope to you if you would uh, open up your Bible at Matthew chapter 9 Matthew chapter 9 let's pray together Heavenly Father you know the things that have been part of our day uh, up to now you know the things the thoughts that would distract us you know the pressures that are upon us We pray that you might, through all of those things, address us this morning. We pray that we might hear your voice, that we might understand your word, that we might believe it and live in the light of it, to the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Of all the remarkable, consistent and comforting things that Jesus did during his earthly ministry... What Jesus did in the three incidents recorded for us at the beginning of Matthew 9 is the most remarkable, the most consistent with his character and the most comforting for people like you and me. In a little while, uh, we will be gathered, in a sense, around this table and we will hear again the words of Jesus addressed to us. This is my body which is given for you Do this in remembrance of me. And this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you. And yet we would have no right to be here We could not expect that these words would be spoken to us without what happens here, without what we learn here in Matthew 9. In Matthew 9, Jesus does the same thing three times. Three different ways of doing it, to be sure, but really the same thing three times. And the words he attaches to what he does are the best words that you are ever likely to hear. The Sermon on the Mount is now days past, so too, that remarkable series of healings, the calming of the storm, the release of the Gerriddine demoniacs. You might remember that uh, after the last of those incidents, the Gadarenes had urged Jesus to leave their region. In a strange way, he had proven himself to be more frightening than the raging, demon-possessed men who had stopped people traveling past the tombs. They couldn't bear to have him around. On this occasion, pure good was more terrifying than pure evil and that's why they begged Jesus to leave. So he got back into the boat and travelled back to his own city, to Capernaum and that's where these three things happened. Have a look with me. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city and behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, child, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said among themselves, He is blaspheming. But Jesus, seeing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For what is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth, in the land to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed and go to your home. And he rose and went to his home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." The first of these incidents, the healing of the paralytic, is perhaps best known to us through Mark's version. Mark gives us the gripping details of the event. Jesus was at home, people had found out and once again a crowd had gathered. They were jammed in so tight that there was no more room, not even at the door. No one could get in. No one could get out. It was like a mosh pit in that house. Not that I've ever been to one. (laughs) But I've heard what they're like. And then four mates brought their friend, their paralysed friend, confined to his bed so that he might be seen by Jesus. They removed the roof dug through the ceiling, made an opening and lowered their friend down right in front of Jesus. It's a gripping story the way Mark tells it. It must have been an astonishing thing to witness. You'd never forget it if you'd been there. But Matthew doesn't give us any of those details. Why do you think that is? It'd make for a better story, wouldn't it? You're not going to get a Pulitzer Prize for writing it up the way Matthew did. But Matthew doesn't want us to be distracted by the detail of the event, by the crushing crowd, by the DIY being done on the roof, or even the number of those who brought their friend. It's just they, not four men. He wants our focus to be square on the forgiveness that Jesus gives to this man because that's the truly astonishing thing. We might surmise that the crowd, the four friends and perhaps even the paralysed man himself were disappointed by Jesus' first words. Take heart, child, your sins are forgiven. But there is not the slightest suggestion of that in this account. Jesus saw their faith. Not so much their ingenuity, not so much their persistence, not even their kindness to this friend in his very obvious, very visible need. He saw their faith and in response to that he said, take heart, child, your sins are forgiven. And you'll notice that there is no protest from the crowd, no gasp of incredulity, there's no angry, disappointed grumbling from the man or his friends. Or if there was, Matthew didn't record it. Perhaps this man and his friend knew straight away that something much more significant than a healing of his paralysis had happened at that moment. Perhaps he was aware that there was something much more profoundly wrong with him than the lack of movement in his legs. We don't really know. But we do know that it is because he saw their faith, Jesus said. Take heart, child, your sins are forgiven. Perhaps uh, you've had the experience of uh, going to the doctor to seek relief from discomfort or pain in one part of your body, only to discover that the real problem is something else. The pain is referred, or dislocation elsewhere is put a strain on the place that you're asking about. The obvious is not always the most serious. And the real solution is not always the one you were expecting. Jesus knew that this man needed far more than an ability to stand and walk. He needed to be forgiven. And he had come, his friends had brought him to the one, to the only one who could meet that most basic need. And if he knew that, if he was aware of that, then this was the most liberating moment of his life before anything else happened. Jesus saw their faith. But that's not all he saw. Some of the scribes, the theological teachers and students, the educated ones who knew their Bible so well, they said amongst themselves, he's blaspheming. It was, or it might have been, an astute theological conclusion. After all, only God can forgive sins. Wasn't it God who told errant Israel in Isaiah 43, I, I am the one who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. Didn't David say in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Jesus might not have misused the name of God, which strictly speaking was necessary for a charge of blasphemy, but he was claiming to do what only God can do and so surely that's enough. The charge might be levelled punishment might ensue, we could get rid of him for this. And Matthew tells us Jesus saw their thoughts. Just as he'd seen the faith of those who had come to him carrying their friend, he saw the wicked thoughts and intentions of the scribes. And so he asked, why do you think evil in your hearts? For what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? or to say, rise and walk. The cynic might have said, words are cheap. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven and we'd never know if it was true. We'd never know whether it's happened or not. But the scribes weren't your average cynics. They knew that forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, which are ultimately always offences against God, they knew that to say your sins are forgiven is beyond any man. After all, there had been healers before in the Old Testament, perhaps even in living memory too. But no man had been able to do this. That's why Jesus goes on to say what he says next. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, take your bed and go to your home. Jesus had spoken with authority in the Sermon on the Mount. It was palpable. The crowds who heard him knew he was not just another scribe. He had real authority. And he had spoken with authority when he banished sickness, when he caused the wind to cease and the waves to stop, when he directed the terrified demons to leave those they'd been tormenting and enter the pigs and die. But now, know where the focus of his authority on earth really lay. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And in case you had the slightest shred of doubt, the man did exactly what Jesus commanded him to do he rose and went home, because Jesus really does have that authority the Son of Man really can forgive sins. And this man is really now forgiven. The Son of Man, the great figure into whose hand God has placed all judgment at the end, according to Daniel 7, was on earth and he has the authority to forgive sins. And the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins has authority to reverse the effects of sin on earth. That's why Jesus went on to heal the man. As one writer puts it, with his coming the authority to forgive sins is released into the world. This is the news that revolutionised that man's life that day. It is the really astonishing thing, not the crowd bit or the roof bit. The second story at first looks very different. Take a look at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Once again, Jesus sees. This time it's not the faith of those coming to him and it's not the evil thoughts of the scribes. It's simply a man. A man caught in the middle of life, embroiled in an occupation and lifestyle that earned him the contempt of the community. A man we might say drowning in his sin, caught in it, right in the middle of it, sitting at the table. Jesus sees him and says so very simply, follow me. And like the paralysed man before him, he does exactly what Jesus says. Right then, right there, he rose and followed him. Two very different stories. The paralyzed man brought to Jesus, and the tax collector, Jesus simply sees and calls to come and follow him. And yet, precisely the same thing is happening in both instances, isn't it? Jesus is doing it again. He is exercising that authority on earth to forgive sins. He is extending forgiveness and life to someone who can do nothing about those things himself. The paralysed man had to be brought to Jesus by others. The tax collector had to be called by Jesus. Neither could improve themselves or rescue themselves. It's interesting, isn't it, that we're not told that the tax collector saw Jesus. It appears he was totally unprepared for what happened that day. He was caught in the middle of the very lifestyle that alienated him from others and distanced him from God. This day might have just gone like every day before it. But then Jesus came and he saw him. He saw Matthew and simply said, follow me and another man lost in sin is found. Once again, Matthew keeps it simple. He doesn't want us to be distracted from the thing that matters. The Saviour called him, that's what matters. And he got up and followed him. Luke will say he left everything and followed him. Matthew's not so much interested in what he left behind as in who stood in front of him and who he began to follow that day. The one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. The one who seeks out sinners and calls them to follow him. Well, the third and final story follows immediately. Elsewhere it's clear that the house Jesus eats in that evening belongs to Matthew. Matthew the tax collector. And he's invited his friends perhaps to celebrate the entirely new direction in life that began when Jesus called him earlier. And it has become a gathering of not the great and the good, but the despised, the polluted and the lost. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is beginning to get out of hand. It's one thing to stumble across a tax collector at his table in the street. That's bad enough. But to eat with him and loads like him, that's beyond the pale. It really is shocking that Jesus would allow himself to be ambushed like this, to be associated with people like this. But he's doing it again, isn't he? He's doing it again. He is exercising that authority on earth to forgive sins. He is meeting with and drawing to himself those who deserve nothing except contempt and judgement and he is claiming them for himself. That night he was not having a quality kosher meal with the religious establishment in Capernaum. He was feasting and celebrating with sinners and tax collectors. In stark contrast, the Pharisees were not celebrating at all. Since they were devoted to purity and scrupulous observance of the law, they probably would have stayed outside the house and they looked down their noses through the window at those who defiled themselves in this way. There was probably a caustic tone to their question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It wasn't really a question. It was an accusation. Well, this time Jesus hears rather than sees. He hears their words. He hears their tone. And he tells them the strong and healthy do not need a physician, but the sick do. He's not identifying the Pharisees as the strong, just as in a few moments he won't be identifying them as the righteous. He's rather simply asking where do you expect to find a doctor? with sick people. That's what he's about. That's his mission. No use being a doctor and avoiding any contact with sick people. No use being out on the Galilean golf course all day and having nothing to do with those who need your skills and knowledge and help. There is something fundamentally right about a doctor being found among the sick. And there is something fundamentally right about Jesus being found among those who are caught in sin. He came, as Matthew's Gospel tells us in the very first chapter, to save his people from their sins. That's the mission. So he will not separate himself from those in need, like the Pharisees have in the name of purity and righteousness. He will not draw attention to the lengths he's gone to remain undefiled to keep from the slightest contact with those who have been caught up In the downward destructive spiral of sin. That might be their game. It's not his. But more than that, Jesus draws attention to something that should have sent a shiver up the spine of the Pharisees who accused him that day. Go and learn, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. These are the words of the prophet Hosea in Hosea 6. They expose the folly of a people who have abandoned faithfulness but kept the outward show, who think God is impressed with ritual and are unconcerned with righteousness and mercy and compassion. And the terrible indictment is that the Pharisees, by their accusation and their hearts which brought forth the accusation, have become just like the apostate nation of Israel. For you see, God's very character is to have mercy. That's always been the case, from those earliest days in the Garden of Eden until the end. He not only approves mercy, he doesn't just like it when he sees it, he is wholly and perfectly merciful. If you really were like the God you purport to serve, he's saying. You would know that mercy trumps religious posturing every time. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Multiply your religious activities all you like, and in doing so, you will only distance yourself from the character of God, the God of mercy who sent a Saviour to save his people from their sins. And here are the words they needed to hear the paralytic and his friends, Matthew, the tax collectors and sinners but also the scribes and the Pharisees. They all needed to hear these words, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Not those who think they've made it, not those recognised by others as having made it, not the religious establishment, not the universally acclaimed paragons of virtue, not the highly qualified and intellectually superior, but sinners, just sinners, just those who have nothing to offer, those who cannot bring themselves but need him to call them, those who know their deepest and most urgent need is to be forgiven, for him to exercise that authority to forgive sins on the earth in their direction, those who know they are lost without him, And who treasure his forgiveness beyond anything the world could offer. He came to save his people from their sins. And aren't you glad that's true? True then and still true now. Without these words, I would have no confidence to be here and gather with you around this table this morning. For I know myself to be one of those sinners that he has called. Jesus told a paralysed man, take heart, child, your sins are forgiven. He called a tax collector while in the very midst of his damnable behaviour to follow me. And he chose, he delighted to eat with sinners and tax collectors all because he is the one who has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He is the one who perfectly reflects the merciful heart of God and he did not come to call the righteous but sinners. That is what he is like. That is what he is always like. And so still today, he delights to eat with sinners. And aren't you thrilled he does?